Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. And now for something completely different. As you can hear in the background, the beehive of activity at SMAC is going on, and we're recording live from Dublin at the SMAC conference. Now, while EM Cases usually brings you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine, for this special episode, while we're still bringing you one of Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine, Chris Hicks, who you may remember from our cognitive decision-making episodes, we're gonna bring together some of the brightest minds of critical care from across the world. So, we've got my friend and fellow podcaster, Dr. Scott Weingart from the US. Scott, welcome. How are you doing, my friend? Lovely. And the brains behind the Life in the Fast Lane blog, Dr. Chris Nixon, born in New Zealand, but practicing in Australia. Born in England. Born in England. New Zealander, work in Australia. Thanks for having me. Okay, so (laughs) we, we didn't need all these people, we just have you, you represent pretty much the whole world. Uh, and Dr. Mark Forrest, who uh, hasn't been on EM Cases before. Mark, welcome. Yeah, good to be here, guys. Thanks for the invite. Awesome. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, I'm a consultant anesthetist by trade, but I'm also an intensivist, and I do regular pre-hospital care, both with police, fire, and ambulance. Yeah. Awesome. And here we go. There's many, many controversies in critical care with an amazing array of regional variation in how we do things. So it's my hope in this special podcast that we can come to some kind of consensus or maybe some killer debates (laughs) on five key critical care controversies. How to prepare your team for a critical event, how to assess fluid responsiveness, direct laryngoscopy versus video laryngoscopy, timing of the trauma intubation, and trauma thoracotomy in a non-trauma center. So here we go with the five controversies. First case is you get a call at your community hospital that a middle-aged man is coming into your ED in shock after vomiting massive amounts of bright red blood. So Dr. Hicks, let's start with you. In general, whether you get the call about a patient with a massive GI bleed like this one, or a scary trauma patient, or a cardiac arrest patient, How are you going to prepare your team for a critical event? Well, this is a case where we're fortunate to have. It sounds like a little bit of lead time. And if it's 30 seconds or a minute or five minutes, I think that time could be put to very good use. Helping your team try to come up with some sense of co-orientation or shared mental model before the patient arrives. You know, we get together. We know a patient's coming in. I think we kind of handle the logistics pretty well. So... Nurses might start getting out IV equipment, getting lines primed. The docs might think a little bit about gear and a linton tube and blood. We do that pretty well. Scott is actually one of the people who talks a lot about the gap between logistics and strategy, where we talk a good game, but when it comes to practically being able to execute some of those logistical considerations, we fall into a big gap in performance. Where I think that gap can partially be addressed in preparation is this concept of team-based preparation before a patient arrives. There's probably three or four key discussion points to have with your team before a sick patient gets there. The first is what we know. What we know. And so that 
often might just be a little bit of tidbit of information like you just provided us with. Upper GI bleed, old guy. To be honest, you could riff a lot of preparation just based on that small amount of information. So what do we know? And then what do we expect to see? What do we expect to see? What do we expect the patient to look like? What physiologic perturbances can we sort of imagine? This works really well in trauma when you sort of play the injury game and say, okay, based on the mechanism, what injuries can we expect to see? And then how can we plan for it? You're just talking about the immediate possibilities, the immediate response. You're keeping your scope of perspective within the first five to 10 minutes because there's a real risk with your team that you start thinking too far ahead and the immediate actions become more problematic. The next question I think is important is what do we do? And importantly, what do we do if that doesn't work? What do we do and importantly, what do we do if that doesn't work? So discuss contingencies. So in this patient, what's gonna be our plan? Early vascular access, early volume resuscitation, early blood products. What if that doesn't work? What's our response gonna be if our initial plan fails or it doesn't give us the expected response? And again, the other, the, the analogy where we do this, I think pretty well is in airway, right? We do that all the time. Here's our airway primary plan. Here's our secondary plan. Here's our backup. We don't do that as well with resuscitation. I think we're okay at saying this is gonna be our first step, but as a team, when you provide an intervention and it doesn't work, that's very often when you see things start to fall apart and people get upset and they get scatterbrained and they get stressed and so on. There is a big difference between a team that sees failure for the first time and sees it coming and sees it as an expected and possible outcome. They respond much differently, in my experience, in terms of how they respond, how they react, how calm, and it really should be viewed as a, as a possible outcome in any circumstance rather than a surprise. And then the final one is role assignment. Role assignment. Which is kind of dynamic, but in the beginning you want to say, okay, practically speaking, and then this comes back to Scott's point about logistics and strategies, who's actually going to do what and how? And that sounds like a mouthful, but in a 30-second chunk of time, you could probably get most of that stuff fairly well scripted. And the final point, and this is something Mike Loria talks about, is the notion of a rally point. The notion of a rally point. So then you tell your team, all right, that's the first five minutes scripted out. At five minutes, we're going to stop very deliberately. We're going to see where we are. I mean, it has to make sense, but ballpark it. You pick a time. And we're going to stop and we're going to be very deliberate about seeing where this has gotten us. That takes you five minutes into the resuscitation. It doesn't have to be a long distance in advance. I mean, we talk about preparation and planning and thinking ahead. Practically speaking, I think a team in a complex situation can only think so far ahead. Yeah. And once they get rolling and once you can empower them to do what they need to do effectively, then you could be the one that starts to think about those long-term uh, strategies and logistics. Once, once the patient is stabilized, where do they go? That sort of thing. So just a quick review of team preparation. This is what you need to do with your team just before a patient arrives. There's five key elements. Number one, what do we know? Number two, what are the possibilities? Number three, what do we do? And more importantly, discussing contingencies if those actions fail, just like we do in airway management. Number four, assign roles to team members. And number five, once you're into the resuscitation, at about five minutes or so, review what you've done and what your next steps are. Next, Chris Nixon's going to share his thoughts on preparing your team. Yeah, I like a couple of things that uh, Hicks said there. So anticipation is a key concept and it's very, very important. But I do sometimes worry that uh, when you're the team leader and you're telling everyone that this is going to happen, that's going to happen, that 
I do worry about creating cognitive biases from that and that people don't think outside of it. So what I did like was how Hicks said that he'd have these almost like cognitive checkpoints where he'd say, okay, if this isn't working, and you need to decide at which point something isn't working because then you've got to rally the troops and say, okay, let's have a rethink because it's not what we expected. So yeah. I think that's a good point. Yeah. And Scott, can you elaborate a bit on uh, the logistics part? Yeah. So Hicks is one of my big inspirations for how teams should be managed. And I've actually brought him to speak to us because it's an area I'm remiss in. And the reason why, and it's somewhat solipsistic, is the way I approach these resuscitations is I'm the only one available. And if there happens to be other assistants, then that is bonus and a wonderful. But when I'm mentally preparing for these, when I probably should be preparing the team more, I'm preparing myself. And the way I do that is by running through the logistics of what I need to make happen. So I'm going to prepare the end tidal CO2, the arterial line setup, the intubation equipment. Now, if someone comes and says, I could do that, great. And then I'll just check it over. But that's the way I'm preparing. That's the way I'm bringing myself to the state I want to be in. And at the same time, throughout all that, I'm making sure that I'm checking in with my breathing and stress levels. And if they're at all where they shouldn't be, then I know now how to fix that from all of the stuff Mike Loria, myself, and uh, other folks looking into tactical preparation have, have discovered. So not only do you need to bring all the great knowledge you've accumulated to a resuscitation, but you need to prepare your team through the five steps that we reviewed. You need to run through the logistics in getting all your gear prepared and making sure everything is in place. And also you need to manage your stress. Now, we'll have some key resources for you on the EM Cases website post for this podcast that you can go to to learn more about these things, managing your stress in a resuscitation, the logistics, and preparing your team. And now for the next case. A 75-year-old otherwise healthy woman comes into your resuscitation room with three days of worsening cough, shortness of breath, and fever. Her heart rate's 130, blood pressure is 140, and her oxygen saturation is 90% on a non-rebreather. You do a quick portable chest x-ray and it shows an obvious large left lower lobe pneumonia. Uh, you suspect this patient is suffering from septic shock secondary to pneumonia, and you order up a liter of crystalloid. So Dr. Nixon, this is kind of a two-part question. First is, how do you assess fluid responsiveness? You've given your liter, how do you know whether it's done anything? How do you know how much more to give? And the second part is, how much fluid do you give before you start pressers? So I'm probably going to give a pretty simple uh, response to this. Um, I think we should start off by saying that we are assuming that the patient has pneumonia and that we've got a confirmed diagnosis. And obviously the important stuff in sepsis is early antibiotics and source control if it's relevant. And then it's uh, all about resuscitation. So in general terms... I'm a little bit of a fluid responsiveness, so what? I think you can manage the vast majority of patients by giving them two to three litres of fluid. And once you're kind of at that point, and, you know, I guess you're looking at the whole patient as to how shocky they are, whether you think they're picking up or not. But uh, if they're not, if you've uh, got other things that make it look like they're still sick, either clinically because they're still cold and clammy, they've got an altered mental state, tachycardic, tachypneic, or the lactate's uh, either going up or not coming down as you'd like, well then I'm going to start noradrenaline or norepinephrine as my first line. 
nothing too fancy. You're talking basic clinical assessment yeah. and lactate. And Pretty much. Uh, I work in an intensive care unit where we have uh, ready access to echocardiography. But in general, if, if I'm happy that it's sepsis uh, and pneumonia, it doesn't really have a big role for me in that initial phase. Because if they're sick, I'm going to want to get the, the pressors on, on board. I guess it's when the pressors are escalating or I've got a concern about there being maybe another uh, diagnosis, then that's where I've got to think about, well, actually, maybe I will just have a look and make sure they weren't really dehydrated beforehand. Maybe they've got a septic cardiomyopathy as well. So I, I guess the crux for me with fluid responsiveness is that what do I really care if the stroke volume increases after I give them a, a bolus of fluid? Because, you know, I'm interested in patient-orientated outcomes that matter. And if I give a, the fluid bolus and the stroke volume increases, well, where's that fluid going to be in an hour's time? And, uh, and that's often our problem in the intensive care unit. I have to say I've come so far towards my friends in Australia and New Zealand as the years have gone on. Yeah, you sure you don't want to say this bit in an Australian accent? <laughs> I'm not Rob Rogers and I couldn't do it justice. Uh, what I will say is I like throwing on the ultrasound early on. I, there's been patients that uh, have unsuspected right heart failure, huge amounts of pulmonary hypertension. I'm not sure if that would change my management, but having that in my mind. But speaking from an emergency department critical care perspective, um, there seems to be like this dichotomous cutoff that if we start norepi, something inexplicable has happened to this patient and now we have to get ICU valve, we have to do all these things. So avoiding it is such a, a benefit. And that's crap because so many of these patients, I'll give a reasonable amount of fluid, just as Chris said, maybe one, two, three liters, and then immediately put them on NORAD. Six hours later, they don't need any more fluid and they're off the NORAD, they're off the norepi. And they could go to a ward. They could go to a, a lower acuity bed than an ICU. So there definitely, in the States at least, is this idea that we shouldn't start norepi because we're forcing a pathway of a central line and immediate admission to the intensive care unit. And that leads people to bad care. Yeah, I think the other important point is that there's nothing wrong with starting norepinephrine in a peripheral line. And, you know, I've had many patients where you start norepinephrine in a peripheral line and they're better. That's all you have to do. I am not the intensivist in the uh, booth right now, uh, but for me, it's like Scott, it's ultrasound. Um, I like to be able to look at the heart, look at the IVC, look at the lungs, make some decisions and make some dynamic de decisions over time. Like Chris, I kind of get away from the concept of fluid responsiveness. The way it's been demonstrated to me that I think is helpful is fluid tolerant. Do I think this patient's going to be fluid tolerant? Can they tolerate fluids? Can they tolerate more fluid boluses? Again, ultrasound isn't perfect for that. Even that as a concept is probably imperfect. Sarah Gray will say, somebody asks her how much fluid you give to a septic patient. She says, I give them fluids until they go into pulmonary edema and then I intubate them, which is probably also an okay answer. But for me, I, I think ultrasound is the most useful tool. Although I agree with what's been said, I, I often don't know. I, I don't know that I necessarily see the value in assessing responsiveness primarily. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I'm, I'm with the same approach in the UK. Uh, they get a couple of litres, a litre or two, and then presses early. We probably wouldn't get ultrasound or echo going downstairs. It would be once they got upstairs in the unit. It's probably more logistics in the setup that rather than and the training of individuals rather than the practicalities. I think if we can get more information in ED, happy days. But I think, yeah, getting the lactate off early, getting seeing which way the trends are going, uh, that's going to be more important to us. And if we're losing, we're falling behind, well, then we're probably going to move to ICU quicker, getting the presses going quicker and more aggressively. 
Anton, I'd just like to come back to the uh, peripheral pressors because, again, I am a fan, but certainly after reading the articles that have attempted to demonstrate the safety on that, I think it's worth looking at the finer print, which is that you're getting good IV access in a large proximal vein and I think a good idea is to have a look with the ultrasound flush some saline through make sure it's not extravasating and you you want to you need to keep looking at that peripheral line so it's got to be recurrently assessed it's not a walk away couldn't agree more and I, I've push this concept of peripheral pressors. And I don't believe after a few hours, if they still need it, that running it through a peripheral long-term is a great idea. Uh, we've shifted to midlines and we'll actually just wire change out the peripheral IV. So now instead of something a centimeter or two from your insertion site, and if there was a back wall puncture, eventually you're going to have extravasation, you have something you know, 15, 18 centimeters away from it. And that's our way of continuing peripheral pressors without uh, having to put a central line in. All right. Great. So let's say we're still going with the septic patient. We've given two liters. Maybe we've started some norepinephrine through a peripheral line. They're not improving. You get a central line going. You're upping your pressors. And now they're definitely requiring endotracheal intubation. So, Scott, which do you reach for first? Direct laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy? DL or VL in general? So VL or DL, God, do I not want to be drawn into this debate. But for, but for me, it's... That's it, why I asked you first, Scott. <laughs> for me, it's, it's an easy answer. Uh, we always want video laryngoscopy for every single intubation. Uh, I only use standard geometry blades. And I ask my residents, do you want to do this one direct or do you want to do this one by video? The blades we use are exactly the same as they would be using with the ones that are um, not connected to video. So there's no, there's no choice. It's the easiest thing in the world. But the advantage at a teaching institution is I could see what they're seeing and teach them when straight DL does not allow me to have any idea what they're doing except for their self-reports and they always lie. <laughs> You mentioned the blades. You know, when GlideScope first came out, the blade was way wider. I, I personally found it much more difficult. To, but now the newer blades, it's equally as easy. For teaching, great. Video is, is amazing. Let's say you're in a community hospital. It's just you. No residents around. DL versus DL. I always go the same route as uh, Scott. So I like to use... Uh, uh, I have available a CMAC, um, but I think also the new awesome-looking titanium glide scopes uh, do the same thing where you can, you know, if the video fails, you just do a, it's direct laryngoscopy. So it's actually not a choice. You, you, can, you can do both or either uh, with the same device. If you don't have one of those devices, then obviously it becomes a different ballgame, but uh, I would recommend people try and get, get a device that allows you to do both and has a separate camera that you can turn around and use for teaching. Yeah, I'm old school. I'd still go DL, but that's just personally. I'm quite happy with the VL. I support what the guys are saying. I think my bigger issue is uh, you're asking me what I would do, but my bigger issue is the, the trainees, and particularly if things are getting difficult. I don't, this is not the time for the toy box and all the new things coming out. I want them using something they're comfortable with and they're trained with. Um, so I'd say for me, DL, but that's just traditional. Yeah. Good point. So it's whatever you're comfortable with. Just reflecting on that. So even if I am by myself, I'm never really by myself. There's always going to be at least one nurse in the room. And uh, for me, the, the thing is that, well, why shouldn't they be able to see what I can see if they, if they have, have that option? If, you know, we're talking about team function, etc. They can anticipate what I'm going to ask for next if they can see that I'm, I'm having a problem. So that's why I'm still on, the, uh, on that side of the pitch. 
the, the other change to go along with what Chris is saying is all of a sudden the one man, one woman game of intubation changes to a team approach. And, uh, you know, we know burp doesn't work because it's empiric, but external laryngeal manipulation by someone else watching the screen all of a sudden doesn't become empiric. And you no longer have to let go of your suction catheter or the ET tube you're holding because your partner could reposition it. Ruben Strayer taught me there's no reason for me to pick up a suction catheter when there's someone next to me watching the exact same clouding and vomit I'm seeing. They could suction and I don't have to um, change and drop the bougie. So all of a sudden the one man, one woman game becomes a team approach. Time for another review. When it comes to fluid resuscitation in sepsis, use basic clinical parameters like level of awareness, vital signs, urine output, as well as the lactate trend to help guide you. Our experts seem to agree that ultrasound may be helpful in looking at the IVC and the lungs, etc., but all agree that fluid responsiveness isn't really very important at all. Perhaps we should be thinking more about fluid tolerance rather than responsiveness and just bolus fluids until the patient is getting clinically better and not worry so much if we've given too much. In terms of starting pressors, there seems to be a consensus that we should be initiating pressors early on, after one or two or three liters of crystalloid, through a large anticubital fossa peripheral IV if necessary, being careful to watch for extravasation, and then switch to a central line. As far as direct versus video laryngoscopy as a first-line tool goes, the most important factor in deciding which is probably your comfort level with the particular tool. But... VL does have the huge advantage of everyone being able to see what's going on so that intubation becomes a team sport. Next, we're going to move on to trauma. We're going to discuss timing of intubation and thoracotomy decision-making for penetrating trauma to the chest. All right, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about gunshot wound to the chest. So on our latest crit care cases, we did one in a rural setting, and it brought up the question on timing of intubation in trauma. So whether to tube the patient early on or later after you've got the blood going and fully resuscitated the patient. You know, we like to say resuscitate before we intubate. You know, at what point during the resuscitation should we be thinking about intubation uh, in a patient like a gunshot wound to the chest? Dr. Hicks, what's your take on early versus later endotracheal intubation for the trauma patient? Well, I'm just stealing a page from uh, Andrew Petrosoniak's uh, playbook uh, when he talks about resequencing the trauma airway. There are some trauma patients that need intubation right away, like as a priority. But honestly, I think those are by and large the minority. And the vast majority of trauma patients, even if airway is in your plan somewhere, can wait. And in fact, they probably should. This is one of the many ways in which ATLS is broken because it continues to emphasize the primacy of airway over a bunch of other stuff. When in reality, and Scott has talked about this many times, you know, you just jump to intubation in an under-resuscitated patient. That's a clean kill. So we talk about resequencing to address the obstructive forms of shock, the hypovolemic forms of shock. Ideally in parallel, it depends on if we're in a rural setting, you may not have the set of hands. Ideally, in parallel with airway preparation, probably if you could only do one uh, as a priority before airway management. Think about the trauma patients you've seen. How many of them need intubation right now? It's pretty rare. So that's my take. So I, I tend to prioritize resuscitation, ideally in parallel with airway preparation, and then the airway can proceed after we have 
decompress the chest if necessary, bound the pelvis if necessary, started volume resuscitation if necessary. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree entirely. I mean, we clearly need a, a different approach. I mean, uh, getting the blood going early and getting a more horizontal or parallel approach, the traditional vertical, doing one step at a time. We know that's how we all learned things many years ago. But in, in reality, it's seamless activity. It's continuous activity, unless the team leader feels we need to stop for a particular reason. So, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. Let's resus them first. It, it, you, you can do many of these things very, very quickly. If they've arrested, well, then you're just going to get your tube down. But if you're thinking of actually an RSI and full, full anesthetic induction, as we would normally normally be, well, yeah, I've got to get some blood in early. Brings up an interesting point. It always used to be that you would always hear that it's sort of bad trauma etiquette to do a thoracotomy without the patient being intubated first. Do you guys all think that's true? If it's just you and you're standing next to an arrested trauma patient? I've always been baffled by that. And at Janus General, we actually had a case where we opened the chest and there was no airway yet and there was huge outcry. What would that ventilation possibly be doing? There is no circulation. We're stopping CPR to open the chest is what that patient needs with a penetrating trauma. There is no purpose to providing an airway on that patient. If you want to continue BVM ventilation, knock yourself out. But until there's a beating heart, it's not doing anything. That segues perfectly into our last question, which is if you're in a small community hospital, if you're in a rural area, should we be trying a thoracotomy? Do we even have a thoracotomy tray? Do we take a knife, open up, and manually spread the ribs, stick our finger in the hole all the way for transport to the trauma center? Uh, Do we just say, this patient is dead? We're going to be causing more problems than we started with. Dr. Forrest, what's your take on uh, doing a, a trauma thoracotomy yeah, for a gunshot wound to the chest in, a, in an area that we don't have the, the gear Well, certainly for. in the UK now, you'd be basically talking about a trauma unit, which would normally be bypassed. But if the paramedics are picking up somebody who is not going to survive the journey or has lost signs of life, they are likely to tip into us, which is a bit strange because suddenly you've got the sickest patients in the least experienced centre. But I think it's crucial that those centres have got some key uh, essential skills, like obviously RSI, securing airway. But I think thoracotomy is in there too. And that's certainly the UK view. This person's going to die. You know, we've got, we've got nothing to lose. We should be able to offer that skill. We don't need a thoracotomy set. We all know, you know, you just obviously need a scalpel, but, you know, a pair of forceps and, and, and you're away. What you find when you get in there is a different issue. Hopefully it's going to be something simple. It's going to be a tamponade. It may well be something we can put a finger on, hopefully a clip or, or a couple of stitches. If it's something more challenging, a lot more challenging, well then, we may not be able to manage it. But all our surgeons, even in the TU, they're all damage control trained, so they should still be able to come and assist us if we do get something more complex when we get inside. So, yeah, I think we should be able to do it, and I'd be very disappointed if our team didn't. Would there be any situation where you wouldn't recommend a trauma thoracotomy in a, in a community hospital? My take would be a little bit different, because I think um, I don't have a problem with it being performed in a community hospital, but I think it needs to be set up for it so as uh, Mark is saying you know you want your team to have been prepared for it to have the equipment for your surgeon who whatever specialty they are to be uh, anticipating that that's going to be happening you don't want to have that conversation at two in the morning I, I have to disagree and we were talking about a very regimented patient population it's a penetrating trauma they either just lost signs of life or very recently lost signs of life. Stab wound to the chest, gunshot to the chest. That patient should be opened. It's as Mark said, you can't do any worse than they're already dead. 
And you very well might find an injury that responds solely to you putting your finger over the right ventricle. And even if no surgeon knows about it, even if someone has to ride to another hospital with that finger over the ventricle, that's a potentially survivable patient. If there are EDs out there that don't have thoracotomy sets, then they shouldn't be EDs. Go today, if you're listening to this, and get a thoracotomy set and put it somewhere in your ED. It will stay as long as necessary and it costs nothing. They have this stuff in the OR already. There's no excuse. If a young person penetrating injury comes in dead with a knife in their chest, you should open it up. I get myself in a lot of trouble <laughs> zipping around Ontario telling non-trauma centers that they should be doing trauma thoracotomies. I say that a lot. And I've, I've learned to massage the message between those two points because I agree with Scott. Penetrating injury to the chest, loss of vital signs less than 10 minutes, that's a clean save. And as has already been articulated, you could only help that circumstance. And if you didn't help, well, then you did your best and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I also recognize that in certain centers, you, you, practically speaking, you couldn't do it tomorrow for system reasons and because people aren't familiar and because you don't have the equipment. The issue then becomes, well, let's now have a conversation about whether or not we're actually able to offer the best care to that particular patient population. And if the answer is no... Let's start looking, let's start, let's take an honest look at why. Do we need equipment? Do we need training? Do we need personnel? Do we need buy-in? Do we need a better system of interfacility transport? And then start advocating for those changes. So if you make an institutional commitment to say that this is important, then yeah, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe a year from now, you're going to get to a point where you could actually offer that sort of treatment. Whereas if you say, well, screw it, it's futile, you're, you're never going to get there. So at least being able to acknowledge that it's the best and only shot that an arrested penetrating trauma patient has to survive, and starting the conversation there might lead to substantive improvements in your system down the road. Well said, Chris. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, uh, and Hicks was actually saying what uh, uh, what I was thinking in a, in a much better way, which is the point uh, being that uh, you just don't want to put yourself in that situation, so uh, tackle it before it does happen so that you can do the right thing uh, when the time comes. Great note to end our special podcast on here. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time and uh, your wisdom. This was fantastic. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Cheers, Thanks, Anton. Anton. Thank you. Bye-bye.